You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. And indeed, this week there is a particular plethora of hot air, half-truths, and downright lies. This is why we exist at its core. You know, I was hoping that after a really long week, this was particularly just time-consuming. I've barely, I've barely had any free time at night, and I feel bad just for my wife. And I was hoping, you know, come Thursday night already, things would wind down uh, after doing nothing all week, House being out of session, Senate adjourning until Monday afternoon, we'd have some extra time. And then Trump drops his uh, amnesty proposal. And this is really, at its core, why we exist. You see all the pom-poms and rockets, as our buddy Mark Levin says, National Review, Red State, all these outlets. Oh, this is brilliant, brilliant move. Everything's brilliant. Everything is, whenever we agree to the assumptions, premises, parlance, philosophy of the left, albeit it could have been worse, even though we should hold all the cards, hold all the government, the soft bigotry of low expectations kicks in, and oh, this is just just amazing. Almost nobody talking about this has a full background on the political legislative fights of immigration, the policy of immigration, the history of immigration, and they just don't know what they're talking about. Now, obviously, many of you heard me on Mark Levin last night. I, For those of you who didn't, I was on the first hour, the second and third segments, about 20 minutes. I'm going to elaborate on a lot of what I said because there just wasn't a, a lot of time. Even though he had me on for a while, there's so much to say, which is why I, I have a lot of articles out on the issue broadly and in my latest one on make tax cuts permanent, not amnesty permanent – I have I touch on some of the issues, but I don't have a comprehensive like, you know, top 10, 15 problems with this as I plan to do just because there's so many thoughts swirling in my mind. And I feel the easiest way is to get it out to you. And I know many of you are asking for my thoughts. And, you know, the first question that needs to be addressed is not, hey, Daniel, what do you think of the Trump immigration framework? That's the wrong question to ask. It's not about the framework. As conservatives, and this is why we exist, we look at things deeply and broadly. You look at the cause and effect. You look at the context, the before and after. You can't look at anything in a vacuum. That's what liberals do. They, you know, This is how the whole immigration issue arises. They focus on the plight of illegal aliens in a vacuum as if there's no – Nothing else is a zero-sum game of sympathy for illegals, so then you're going to arrive at a very different conclusion, whereas with public policy, you always have to look broadly. Um, legally, what's your responsibility? Morally, what's your responsibility? And you know, in terms of prudence and perspicacity, taking the broad realm of factors and players and outcomes and you know consequences, what's the best course of action? You don't isolate one thing in particular. But this is true on in politics as well. You have to look at the before and after. And too many people are looking at this framework as if it's like a piece of legislation, as if you could press a button and get this with all of its provisions fully enacted, fully followed. And like, well, you know, look, there's a lot of good stuff here. And, you know, this is a brilliant plan because if they reject it, then they look unreasonable. They're missing something very important. They're missing the context of everything Trump has been saying until now and Republicans have been saying until now. They're missing the most basic tenets of the art of the deal of how to negotiate. They already gave away the farm. He, he, here's the problem. Trump has already maniacally and desperately he's, – he's at it again today at the Davos uh, conference – 
saying, these are good people. I don't want to deport them. We need them. We need DACA. We need Dreamers. I want Dreamers. I want it. I want it. I want it. You're done. You're done. There's not a single Democrat, even the most conservative, which are, by the way, to the left of the most liberal Democrats of 10 years ago, Joe Manchin, says has not agreed to an inch of chain migration, has not agreed to an inch of this, except for the you know vague BS border security. And even he wants full amnesty for the parents. So typically negotiation goes, okay, you want to increase non-defense spending. I want to increase defense spending. I don't want what you want. You don't want what I want. So let's negotiate. Here, the entirety of the Republican Party, Ted Cruz is pretty much the last man standing. Even Tom Cotton has kind of been a little bit off message is now supporting this. Ted Cruz is literally the only senator I know of. Obviously, a couple House members who don't agree to this entire premise. Everyone else says, look, we must do DACA. This is serious stuff. Uh, but but could he, can you please throw in some reforms and some chain migration reforms? Gee, if you're a Democrat, do you have any pressure or incentive to give in on any of that? Oh, we got this. We got that. You got nothing. Here, The important thing is the environment through which this deal was crafted. Because the entire weight of the political universe, including the Republican Party, including Trump, is agreeing in unanimity to the entire premise of dreamers, the entire premise of no fault of their own. When you come up with a framework that expands DACA to a a now open-ended, ambiguous time frame of pretty much anyone who came here before the age of 18, not just before 2007, but before some later unspecified date that's very fudgeable. You're done! Now that's the new baseline for negotiations. Oh, but, but I said chain migration. Gee, they never said, they never agreed to that to begin with. So Chuck Schumer is now just going to draft a bill now with 1.8 million, he's going to start with 2.5 or 2.8 million, and he'll have a talking point for each of the pillars. Oh, he, and I, we've watched this before. This was the Hegel Menendez proposal of claiming in return for amnesty to have some cuts to legal immigration that would only take place 15 to 20 years from now, while in the meantime, we have full, immediate, irretrievable, irrevocable, categorical amnesty plus an actual acceleration in chain migration until we use it up. And then, oh, 15 years later, when Democrats have a permanent majority um, and they could just rescind anything they want, uh, then we'll have some cuts to you know undesirable legal immigration. Um, no, it d- doesn't work that way. I mean, I, I love it. Like the, these, these thumb-sucking nerds that – and I'm not even talking about the left. I'm talking about these pseudo-conservative pundits – that Mark Levin always talks about, that I know I know who they are. Deep down, they support open borders straight up. But it's unacceptable if you have any type of conservative audience to believe in that. So they have to know, like, we want some good security. Now they're even talking about chain migration because it's become cool, whereas a year or two ago, they would have said that's an epithet. Um, but they're like, well, this is very reasonable, very, very reasonable. This is, this is really good. And they don't know anything about the issue. They never cared about it. They don't understand. There's nothing nuanced about this. This is what Schumer offers every time. What the Democrats do is this. They have Durbin and the other guys coming out like with the alt-left stuff, you know, illegal alien supremacism stuff. But then they get Schumer, who's very smart and knowledgeable about the immigration issue. He knows the laws. He, I mean, heck, this guy has been fooling us since 1986. That's how long he's been around. This guy has been so around so long that he was the impetus for the problem we face today. So he gets up there, and it, it's interesting because Schumer has this deep fascination with the conservative movement. He's very in tune to the way we work and our language. And he's like, hey, look, we, we need to work on border security. And he'll speak our language for us. And this is what he did with Rubio. Thank God Rubio is saying, look, I'm done with this issue. But, you know, everyone else is getting sucked into it. And I believe even Trump. 
and he comes back with this this typical screwball and it's the perfect thing it's immediate categorical and irretrievable amnesty in return for vague promises of funding that could easily be rescinded and will be rescinded because Trump would get crushed if this passes, so they'll win anyway, and nonsense of of down the road. But before I get into details and law and policy, it's just important to reiterate. Even if you believe that if you would press a magical button and get this whole deal, that it would be worth it, which I think if you had some tweaks, you could make the case to it that it's pretty close to that. It would be a painful concession, but maybe on net you'd, you'd benefit. You're not going to get this. And the only way you get this, the only way you get this notion of 4D chess is if you do what we're doing here at Conservative Review, if you do what Mark Levin's doing and some others. But if you're there with the pom-poms, you definitely won't get it. This is what you might get if you put a draw a red line around no amnesty or at least the Goodlap bill. But if you start with this, you're not getting it because you've already given away the farm. But there's something really important here. Trump already, and this is not in the framework, but Trump said it. He already gave away his most important piece of leverage. And that's the deadline. You know, he should have come in like a lot of things and on January 20th, get rid of it. You won the election on this. You seize the righteous indignation. You be very consistent about it. Look, this is unconstitutional. But no, he waffled. I care about them. He waited till September. Even in September, well, the renewals will last until um, until March. And then Wednesday night, he hints to the fact that, you know what? I could always extend the deadline if we don't achieve a deal. So you're done. See, the pom-poms are saying that This is a brilliant uh, idea because you're showing that you're really reasonable, but while still, you know, having some good conservative policy in there, and they're still going to reject it, and then they look unreasonable. Okay, that's only if this is take it or leave it. If this is your final offer and you walk away from it, and you're willing to say, "All right, then no amnesty, no DACA for you." We're going to move on to making the tax cuts permanent rather than making amnesty permanent, which he should be talking about anyway. I mean, that's another – there's another point that nobody's talking about. You have the best economic news in recent memory. You have you, – we had a major debate over taxes. Democrats said it's horrible. It will be only good for the rich, and they are busted. I mean, even liberal companies like Starbucks are offering – Bonuses, not just because of the individual tax cuts, but because of the corporate tax cut that they decried as evil for the rich. Seldom do we have a political debate in this country where within a couple weeks the truth comes out so clearly. And to, to the point where a man like Bernie Sanders, of all people, had nothing to say other than, well, it, it's not permanent. So Ted Cruz is like, all right, let's make it permanent. Why isn't Trump giving a speech every day demanding Right now, vote today, make it permanent. Why isn't Mitch McConnell slamming it on the House floor? Having easels, you know, those easels they put on the Senate floor of quotes from every Democrat, making fun out of them, how, oh, this is going to kill people, this is horrible, juxtaposing it to the wealth of news going on with the corporations and the stock market and everything. Stock market's going so nuts, I, I, I have so much money I wanted to put in that I didn't put in last year because I thought it was too high. I can't even put it in because it never goes down. Embarrass them. Instead, they're stepping on that news, talking about amnesty, talking about illegals all day, and in addition, pushing a policy that will burden taxpayers. Why are you doing this? But no, Trump has made it very clear. He cares deeply about it, wants to get it done. He says it every day, and now he says he's willing to move the deadline. So if I'm Schumer, I just wait him out. He already admitted to amnesty no matter what. Now he admitted to moving it beyond this, which I want to talk about in a minute why it's very significant. It's not just a numbers game. It's a very significant categorical opening of a Pandora's box that has no guardrails anymore. We're going to discuss that. But the broader point here is 
It's the atmosphere, the leverage that he gave away. Trump said in the art of the deal, I mean, he didn't really write it, but whatever, that you never, ever, the worst thing you can do in the negotiations is show the other side that you're desperate for a deal. Then they smell blood and you're done. They got you. And that's the thing. How could you even agree to end any amnesty, much less raise the bar threefold for your offer when they have made no commensurate agreement on anything fundamental and transformational? And certainly not immediate. It's always, I'll give you an amnesty today for for enforcement or legal reforms on Tuesday. And the sad thing is we've done this every time. It's, It's Charlie Brown and the football. These people are pathetic. We don't need to reinvent the wheel here. But what bothers me is it's not just the the, the legislation, the, the the framework, the piece of paper. Um, you got to look at at poli- You know, in the politics is not a, a science or a math. It's an art. It's a perfect mix of understanding the policy and the politics. The, where is this coming from? Where is this really headed? Who are the players? The institutional knowledge, the legislative knowledge, it, it all ties together. You can't have one without the other. You can't look Amelia Bedillo's down. Well, it, it says that if you're you know, a public charge and you're, you're not educated and you're a criminal, you're not going to get amnesty. Like, you idiot, you have to understand how that plays out in the real world, what history has shown, what the courts have shown, which we're going to get to in a minute. But Trump has already violated – it's not just that Trump promised a set of policies. It's the philosophy. He said beautiful things in that August 31st, 2016 speech in Phoenix where he said a number of things, a number of things I want to quote from that that really – you know, just speak to the essence of what, why so many people voted for him and, and how he betrayed that, how he's already betrayed it. And that's this. He said, our message to the world will be this. You cannot obtain legal status or become a citizen of the United States by illegally entering our country. Gee, what message does this send now? Not only is he doing legal status, he's doing citizenship. Next. When politicians talk about immigration reform, they usually mean the following. Amnesty, open borders, lower wages. Immigration reform should mean something else entirely. It should mean improvements to our laws and policies to make life better for American citizens. Then he said this. The truth is the central issue is not the needs of the 11 million illegal immigrants. Anyone who tells you that the core issue is the needs of those living here illegally has simply spent too much time in Washington. There is only one core issue in the immigration debate. And that issue is the well-being of the American people. And that's the problem here. He has already made amnesty the main course, the central point. It's just an afterthought, but oh, please give me the wall. Please give me a wall. And then the truth, and then, you know, beyond that, he said that now he's talking about chain migration. But again, it's under the guise of, yes, we must do amnesty. Yes, yes, yes. But really, I want this stuff as an exchange. But you're done once you agree to that, and it was already a problem, but now that he let the cat out of the bag that it's not just the logistical thing of DACA, but also this broader dreamer nonsense, you're done. You made that the central issue. And let me give you one more quote that is just such a violation of everything. Even the Goodlap bills is a violation of this. You know, we all we all swore up and down that we'll never do amnesty again. We understand that it never works. And then we said even to the extent we'd agree to amnesty, it would have to be implementation of enforcement first, where it's not just talked about first, legislated first, but it's actually implemented. You see the executive branch properly fulfilling it and the court's not screwing around with it because history has shown that it's the really the other two branches that even when you have good legislation, immigration in particular doesn't work out the way it's legislated. Right, that, that is a simple history. Trump said the following, and the establishment of our new lawful immigration system, then and only then will we be in a position to consider the appropriate disposition of those individuals who remain. The discussion can take place only in an atmosphere 
in which illegal immigration is a memory of the past, no longer with us, allowing us to weigh the different options available based on the new circumstances at the time. Right now, however, we're in the middle of a jobs crisis, a border crisis, a terrorism crisis like never before. All energies of the federal government and legislative process must now be focused on immigration security. That is the only conversation we should be having at this time, immigration security. Cut it off. That's what he said. And that's what captured the hearts and minds of people. You know, I'm not here to gloat to you and say, ha, 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 Ted Cruz, you know, the irony of Ted Cruz, and I'm trying to get him on the show. Um, I wanted to get him on today. It seems like he's busy. But Ted Cruz is the only senator left standing on this issue. No amnesty. And, you know, I, I was the only person in the kind of immigration patriot community that work does it professionally that supported Cruz over Trump. And what I told them is I said, look, you know, rhetorically, Cruz might be an 80 and Trump might be a 95. But with Cruz, you're going to get the 80. With Trump, you might get a zero and you're certainly not getting the 95. Now, look, let, let me just say, I think he's moved in a positive direction on many fronts. I don't want to, I certainly don't want to call it a zero, especially recently it's not. Um, he still is giving voice to some of this stuff. But this was the point. It was what is the central focus? He committed to us. I'm not even upset about the no amnesty. But the point was that it wouldn't be the first thing you talk about. We're only a year into the administration, and he's and he's admitting not just DACA, but 1.8 million. And we're going to discuss in a minute. It's, it's really going to grow to a lot more than that. Oh, but please give me chain migration. You're done. You have no leverage anymore. But moreover... We're going to discuss why this won't work, even if we took the plan as is, which we're never going to get. But even if you could press a button, because it cannot work in this atmosphere. You can't look at the framework. You have to look at the atmosphere through which he's introducing it. It's not through an atmosphere where sanctuary cities are gone. Asylum is gone. Refugee out of control is gone. UCAs are gone. Um Catch and release is gone. Judicial amnesty and judicial intervention is gone. Visa overstaying is gone. The border wall is built and working. Our legal immigration becomes a merit-based system. We have E-Verify in place, which, by the way, is notably missing from Trump's framework because it actually works really, really well, which is why that's something the left can never agree to. That's the point. It's not just a matter of priorities, which is very important deeply rooted in the social compact, that you owe it to us first, especially after we did it for them the previous seven times first. Let's finally address our needs first, first. But it's a logistical thing. The, the political environment, both the, the legal environment, the political environment, the logistical environment, makes it that amnesty could only possibly work in that atmosphere. So when you, when you have this thing of amnesty, okay, but we're going to get this and this is this good thing. It's a joke because if you understand our politics, you're going to get the amnesty. You're not going to get most of the good stuff. So, so this is the case that they just don't get. But let's, let's take it further and get into some of the specifics. And also, I was just speaking with a friend, and we're kind of going over you know, strategy, what's going on here. What people don't understand is who is writing the legislation? Okay, it's not going to be an ally. I understand technically the White House doesn't write legislation, but usually if you want something, you have, you know, the leadership members are on the same page with the White House. In this case, as you know, Senate Republicans are to the left of where he is. See, that's another important ingredient here. There's one thing if all Republicans were as solid with Trump as Democrats are with, you know, their party. So then you could count on your party. Here, the Senate Republican conference is a cesspool on immigration. I mean, this is dating back to all the amnesties that you know they supported, but the House didn't. So it, it ain't going to be Tom Cotton writing that bill. So even the things that they have in their framework, which again is very faulty, aren't going to be in there. And the details matter. This is the problem. What Trump did was completely nuke the House's leverage. His most loyal foot soldiers 
in the Republican Study Committee, Freedom Caucus, these type of guys that are out there every day going out on a limb for him with the Russia scandal and the FBI. Um, it's these type of guys that are getting shafted. It's, it's a disgrace. It's a pure, utter disgrace. This is the type of thing that after the House passes the Goodlap bill, then you go ahead and say, um, look, you know, all right, guys, the House passed a very reasonable bill. I'll come down one more level. This is my final offer. But this is your starting thing before the House, which is your better arm, which if Trump really is legitimately with us, he should be with the House, not with the Senate. He undercut their leverage. So let's go through some of the details here. Here's what people don't understand about the difference of doing just DACA versus, you know, 690,000 versus this open-ended codification of no fault of their own, the broader thing that the liberals have brainwashed the Republicans into using the language of dreamers. It's not just a numbers game, an auction. Oh, you want 1 million, 1.5 million. Do I hear 2 million? It's not, a, it's, it's, it's much more than that. It breaches a red line philosophically, politically, and legally. And it's not just three times more like, oh, you know, 1.8 million is three times more than six. It's three million times worse. So number one is – now, I'm not saying I agree to this. I'm just saying if you pass the good lap bill, you're saying, look, we're going to get immediate cut, cutting off of chain migration, immediate implementation of E-Verify, um, immediate end to asylum fraud, all this type of stuff. But we're going to give you non-immigrant visas and just DACA. So the two main differences is that this was 690000 and just, just non-immigrant visas. And also, just so you know, the, the, there was specific criteria you know, to make, oh, only, you know, criminals won't get it, not just a talking point, but it was actually put in there that they will open up juvenile records, even DUIs are inadmissible. You know, they wrote it carefully as nothing promised. It certainly it's not promised in the framework, and it clearly will not be in the draft. It cannot be in the draft that's written based on who's writing it. But philosophically, you're saying, look, we should have never done amnesty. It was illegal what Obama did. But you guys put yourself forward, presented yourselves, logistical issue here, we're going to renew it for you people. So anyone who has it, has it. If you don't, you don't. It's not just the fact that it's limited to 690000 What Trump is now saying and agreeing to is that is a broader codification of a philosophical argument, which is becoming almost extra constitutional. The courts are pretty much codifying it of no fault of their own. That it's really anyone who is brought here when they're younger than 18, you're here to stay. So the 1.8 million is just BS. It's not clear where they got it from. The Migration Policy Institute estimates that 400,000 worth comes from lowering the education standards. So that's one talking point that's out the window. Um, but a big thing they mentioned is that they're moving the time frame. That is a central issue, as I mentioned on Mark Levin's show last night. See, DACA was anyone who came – it was implemented in 2014 by Obama, and it was anyone who came here before 2007, bef you know, under the age of 18. But they also had to be over a certain age too. So now here's the interesting thing. That was a red line. It was done. It's not a matter of I feel bad for a – it's not a category of people. It's that, look, you guys happen to get it. You could keep it. Just logistically. Here you're saying now, we're going to update the time frame. So I'm assuming it's roughly at 2011, 2012 now. That's going to easily keep moving. What about the 2014 plethora, hundreds of thousands of even poorer Central Americans, many of them gang members, horrible human beings, not all of them, but many of them, but almost all of them public charges and very poor, huge fiscal drain. The Democrat bills are already around that 2014 for the cutoff. 
ironically, we're already brushing up to the point where we're going to grant amnesty to those who came as a result of DACA. What about the people coming now? What about the future people? The point is there's no end to it. I believe fundamentally with any amnesty, it's a, it, it winds up being this way. But again, the good lad thing, you could kind of say, well, you know, it's a unique circumstance and it's just the P. If you got it, you got it. If you didn't, you didn't. Here you're inviting people prospectively. You're writing into immigration law, whereas everyone now is deportable. You say, okay, well, if you're brought here under 18 and a moving day, deadline, you could, you could come, you could stay. You could present your case and apply. That's going to grow. The Democrats are going to start off immediately. So there's no way of even knowing 1.8 million. It's going to easily be 3 million. But then it's going to grow from there. Because what about the parents? You can't divide up families. And then here's, here's the other thing about that, which, which DACA, limiting it to just the DACA people, doesn't have the risk of doing, which is one of the brilliant things the Democrats did with DACA is that they used not the most sympathetic group, but the second most sympathetic group as their leadership in the armada. And the brilliance of that is because if you start off with the most sympathetic, so you might not get anything more, but if I start off with the second most sympathetic, I automatically get the other one. See, the dirty little secret is most of the people, because of the time frame, are in their 20s, even 30s. The people that are younger than 15 aren't eligible. You're going to deport babies? Five-year-olds, what about the people brought literally, literally right now as a result of Trump promising DACA? There's been a 622% increase in family units going over the border since April. What about those people? You're done. But that's the political argument. There's a legal argument that people are missing. See, what these Johnny-come-latelyist-immigration policy don't realize, people like me, I've— watched pretty much every major immigration case in court, in the lower courts, over the last five years. And it's a big topic of my book, the intersection of immigration and the courts and stolen sovereignty. So theoretically, here's another big difference. Theoretically, if you just do DACA, so like, look, if you have the status, you have it, you get it renewed. If not, not. There's not much of a lawsuit you could you could put forth, theoretically. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, so it's the, 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 the disease doesn't spread. It doesn't grow. Here, you're opening up an, open, an entitlement. You're saying anyone under 18 could present themselves or brought here under 18, uh, they're under 35 now, could present themselves. So that means that all deportations grind to a halt. You know, part of what they're saying is they think, okay, these guys, we get off our chest, but then we're just going to enforce the law on everyone else. No, this is why amnesty never works. Because now that you write into law that you have an opportunity to come forward and get status, anyone has to be given the reasonable opportunity to present their case. And these are even criminal aliens. There's no shirt that says I'm a dreamer and I'm not a dreamer. And keep in mind, most of the criminals, and there are many among this population, are are young. They're not the 70-year-olds committing crime. I mean, Hispanics are no different than whites and blacks in the sense that it's mainly young males that are doing the crime in every demographic. So it's a lot of cr criminal aliens. But here's the deal. The courts are already doing this with DACA. And they're already doing it when the statutes are black and white. They're nullifying the statutes or without directly nullifying them, ignoring them. And they're mandating judicial amnesty. You know, there's been cases I've heard from uh, people who worked at DHS where once DACA was implemented, they would go into the jails to, uh, to get rid of them. And they'd laugh at them and say, I'm, I'm eligible for DACA. And you say, well, what do you mean criminals can't get DACA? That's a talking point. Some, sometimes you'll eventually win the court case. Sometimes you won't. But either way, you're going to have to fight block by block, person by person. Every deportation is going to be litigated. Because whereas now, prima facie, you could deport any, anyone, here, prima facie, everyone has to be given the opportunity to present themselves unless you prove they're not eligible for DACA. 
unless you'd really write that law carefully, but that's not what's going to happen. And B, even if you write the law carefully, even under current law, we have an emergency. We need judicial reform, even without amnesty. I mean, people don't realize even before the Judge Aslop case in San Francisco where he's just carte blanche mandating DACA, there's been a number of individual cases where they block deportations and say, this guy's a, this guy's a dreamer. You can't deport him. There's been cases where, you know, one was someone lied to a police officer, drunk driving. They say that's not enough of a crime to deport them. And and anyone who's familiar with immigration law knows there's only a minimum threshold of criminal. You only have to be a, a bona fide criminal alien to be deportable if you're a legal immigrant. Then you're deportable. But if you're illegal, then you're illegal. Then you're deportable even without being a criminal alien. But they're saying you have to be a criminal and a certain level of criminal. Once you write it into law, you're done. You can never bring that back. That's what they don't understand. So even if you would get this framework, you'd have an immediate shutdown of all deportation. The enforcement is meaningless. You know, it's funny. As I'm talking to you, I'm looking on Twitter here, and I'm actually seeing, and you're going to laugh, but New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut are launching a coalition to sue the federal government to reverse the unjust tax law. They're literally taking a tax cut to court. And you guys will laugh. Oh, come on. It'll be thrown out. But yeah, I mean, look, I would venture to say the Supreme Court's going to laugh it off. But, you know, they're in the, um, what is it, the Second Circuit there, mainly the Second Circuit. Uh, that's pretty basket case territory. Um, they can get a whacked out New York judge there. There's there's plenty of them. You're seeing it on immigration. So, I mean, they, they've already done this on immigration. They, they've taken away immigration. They'll take away tax policy. You cannot – I mean, I, like I said, I was very hesitant to even support the Goodlap bill with even a very confined red line of those who already had status under the executive amnesty because seeing what the courts are already doing. But if you invite into law this thing, I mean, forget it. I mean, what – and also, I, I love this business. There's – there's another thing, and, and again, this speaks to what Trump meant when he talked about atmosphere. You have to change our entire culture politically and atmosphere on immigration. The only way an amnesty could work is, is if you first did what we want. You can't work it under this. You know, conservative proponents of amnesty interject their own reality into a reality that doesn't exist. They act like liberals. And that's why the courts are so important here. But what they always do politically, I've watched this in the 0607 debate. And just so you know, what really got me involved in politics professionally was the 2006 immigration fight. So I have a lot of memories going back there. I can't say I remember the 1996 immigration bill and, you know, past fights like some friends I have. But, you know, I certainly have a lot more institutional knowledge than any of these guys talking about it. And... In the 06 battle, 07 battle, 2013, they did the same thing. On the one hand, they would speak about the moral imperative. We need to do amnesty. How dare you have no fault of their own? But then on the other hand, when they're ready to do it and people are unhappy, they have to really limit the magnitude. This is only the best, and they'll pay taxes, and they won't be on welfare, and they're going to learn English, and they're going to serve in the military. And I laughed because, like, well, and let's say they don't. What are you going to do? Deport them? Think about it. You have people here right now that are legally are 100% illegal. Yet there is this much enormity of pressure. The enormity of the, the weight of the entire political universe is supporting them. No one is supporting the American people, which, by the way, is why I think it's so important people like us give voice to the forgotten man. But anyway, when I say pressure, I don't mean from the people. I mean from the political class. It's all about amnesty to the point that they're willing to shut down the government. You mean to tell me once they're 100% legalized, then suddenly you're going to rescind it? Oh, well, if you didn't fulfill the commitment, give me a break. They're not willing to do it now, certainly then. Oh, you're a criminal. Oh, we're going to deport you. Except for maybe the very worst murderers. And even then, it's hard to get rid of them. 
but you didn't learn English. You didn't, you know, and, and, and here's the joke about paying back taxes. If you ever tried to do that, they'd actually wind up getting more on net because they get the refundable tax credits at their income level. But, um, and I have a whole article out on the fiscal cost today. But that's the joke here. It's never going to happen. So it's going to be a lot more than that. It's not a matter of like, oh, only if you're this, you get it. That's the good lap bill. It, it's confined. If you do this, you're basically politically and legally opening yourself up for basically, and this is even if 1.8 million is what passed, which I'm telling you, you're not going to get that. That's the new baseline. You're going to get at least 2.8 million, the size of the 1986 amnesty, which in itself started out as 400,000 farm workers, always grows. What I'm telling you here is that even if you got that, it's going to be a lot more because you're you're categorically creating a new class. And the government then has to prove that you're not eligible. The courts, A, are going to give them problems. But politically, no one's going to have the appetite to deport someone who is a public charge. It's not going to happen. We don't do it to legal immigrants. It's a condition for legal immigration we don't enforce it. We're certainly not going to do it on amnesty. We're just not. They're all public charges. With very few exceptions, the census data shows it. 87% of illegal alien households right now are on one means-tested program, and that does not include the refundable tax credits. That means 10 of SNAP, Medicaid, or Obamacare subsidies. Because, again, they all have American-born babies, and they collect on their behalf. And of course, nobody, even the good lap bill, is even putting the most important element on the table of stolen sovereignty. And this is what makes no sense. There's one thing to say, in theory, I sympathize in a vacuum with some illegals in addition to Americans. After we do this, let's discuss some sort of amnesty. But what I can't relate to is if it's really all about sympathy for the logistical problem of what's already been done, those already here. But you genuinely want to stop illegal immigration in the future. Nothing insidious here. You genuinely want to do that. Why would you oppose prospectively ending unconditional, un unqualified birthright citizenship for illegals? That makes no sense. Daniel, that's racist. No, no, no. I'm not talking about those that we already gave it to. I'm saying you're prospectively inviting in people. I want to end illegal immigration. Oh, but by the way, if you come here illegally, uh, your kid's an American citizen. He could vote, and you collect welfare immediately on his behalf. What? Again, this is not about ending it because they don't want to end it, and they want the Democrat votes, or the pseudo-right-leaning places want the um, ingratiating pandering, or they want uh, you know the cheap labor for the industries, and that's what it is. But that, that's considered untouchable. But that's why they all get welfare. And they all get welfare. So they are going to be a public – they're all a public charge. Of course they're a public charge. You know, it's funny. When you, when you talk to some of these – you know, again, some of these conservative pundits, you talk about the general tax benefit structure in America um, about, about um, you know, just – the fact that among American citizens, you have to be earning over a certain amount to be a net producer, they all recognize that. Yeah, you know, they, everyone recognizes that. But somehow when you extrapolate that to the poorest segment of immigrants, namely illegals from Mexico and Central America, where the census data is just very clear about that, they get all huffy on you. Like, what do you mean? I mean, you admit that's true among Americans. I mean, it's certainly, I mean, you know, that, that's a major problem. I mean, why is Trump not getting up there and saying, very simple, rather than making it a talking point, if you really wanted to codify your talking point into an amnesty bill, you'd write that every illegal has to sign an affidavit that as a condition to getting amnesty, they are not allowed to take refundable tax credits or, or welfare. And if the Democrats start getting wee-weed up, they say, well, what a minute, I, I thought you said they're the best and the brightest. You should have nothing to worry about. This shouldn't affect them, right? They should have to take an English exam. Yet, if you go to USCIS's website, on their website, they have an entire section for interpreters because you and I both know many of them don't speak English. There's a reason why one quarter, one out of four 
of every California public school child is enrolled in an ELL program. Now, yeah, not all of them are dreamers. Not all of them are, you know, from Mexico and Latin America. Not all of them are illegal. But basic socioeconomic common sense and data has shown that on average, illegals have lower, you know, assimilation rates, English proficiency, um, income than legal immigrants. I mean, I think people from all sides of this debate would agree upon that. So if if the ELL programs are prominent, it's mainly coming from the legals. I think it's certainly, unfortunately coming even from some legal immigrants too. But um, that that's the deal. It's the children in the schools. Who do you think they are? These are going to be the people that if they're not eligible now, they'll be eligible for the next tranche. You know, it, it is it is such a joke, such a joke that nobody is discussing this and nobody is even trying to put this stuff in legislation. And it won't be put in legislation because the only people who would put this in there is the House. The House has to go first. And you undercut the House. This is where they're wrong. There is no 3D chess. The 3D chess would be supporting the Goodlap bill or nothing and commanding the House to immediately move. That, that, that's where your leverage would come from. That's the only way you can maybe get a bill like this is the outcome. So, I mean, th- th- there's, there's a lot, a lot going on here. You know, I'm, I'm already losing my voice and sniffling here. Just so hoarse, but there's so much more to say, so much more. We're going to have to continue it another time. But, you know, there's another thing I just want to introduce to you. Obama implemented super DACA. Officially, DACA was just not, you know, work permits. But there was a way that some of them were able to to wind up getting green cards or a path to a green card. What was the super, super DACA status? So there is something called C9, C9P status. And these are work permit, permits issued to those DACA recipients who traveled back home and then are allowed to re-enter and reclaim their status and get a work permit. So now this is, this is a form of advanced parole. So basically, if you're here on DACA, so you're – illegally, I mean, unconstitutionally, you're allowed to stay. You're, okay, you're good. You're good to go. You have a work permit. But let's say you apply for a green card. Well, we look at you. Well, okay, but you're, you're not eligible because you came here. You entered illegally. What this did is it allowed them to cleanse their status retroactively, go home very quickly, and come back. Thereby, now, your status is cleansed. Now, you'd say, okay, but then who says you're going to be entitled to a work permit? So they married the two. They gave them the best of the DACA status, but also the status of a newly arrived legal immigrant. So it allowed them to work indefinitely here and not worry about going back, but then allowed them to have on their history status that they're here legally now, and then they could apply for a green card and get in line. Do you want to know something? You want to know something? Obama handed out this status roughly to 170,000 to 150,000 every year since DACA was implemented. It, it was, um, you know, 2015, 2016. Maybe it started in 2014, but it, but it ranged from about those uh, that that classification. Now, to be clear, if you add it up, it's not that many people because many individuals um, went back and forth a number of times. So it's, you know, because otherwise it would be hundreds upon hundreds of thousands, and clearly it's not that many. But, you know, it was definitely at least, you know, two, three hundred thousand got this status. That's a big chunk of DACA there. Now, if you're not already getting my point, let me make it for you. I thought these people knew no other country but America. They wouldn't even know of a place to deport them back to. Oh, whoops. They knew where to go back to when they wanted to cleanse their status and manipulate the system. So what I mean to say, this is a lie. You certainly have the picture-perfect ambassadors they have that they show on TV, but the reality is a whole number of them do not speak English proficiently. They 
are impoverished, they're on welfare, and then certainly a, a lot of them are are gang members, criminals, maybe not hardcore criminals, but troubled youths. Dude, we, we've got a problem there. But I'm, I'm just about running out of time. I didn't even get to the fact that this doesn't get rid of chain migration for 15 to 20 years and in fact accelerates it um, until then. So, I mean, that's that's a whole nother problem there. But just real briefly before my voice dies here, and it's getting pretty close to dying, they say they get rid of chain migration prospectively. And, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, that, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, let's take it. And again, this is why the Democrats aren't going to agree to it, but they're just going to pocket the concession, as I said, on amnesty and just, you know, write some sort of phony talking point on this and water it down even more and more. But there's one thing that people don't realize. Even if you did get this, there's a very big difference between this and the Goodlatte bill that makes all the difference. The fundamental problem with everything is immediate, categorical, irrevocable amnesty in return for future revocable, sometimes intangible promises. Now, this is more tangible than other offers, but it is actually similar to Hegel Martinez in 2007. I know Mark Kerkorian pointed this out. He's actually ironically at National Review, although they won't put him on the front page. They'll put the garbage there. Um, but he's mainly not National Review. It's mainly Center for Immigration Studies. He knows what he's talking about. Um, and I remember this at the time. Part of what they would negotiate with conservatives, okay, well, if you give us amnesty, we'll give you some cuts to, you know, like chain migration, low-skilled illegal immigration. And the, the thing people forget is that the trajectory of immigration, we have crossed into uncharted waters two times over. Um, I've given to you a lot of quotes from Democrat and Republican politicians from 1990 when we were at the foot of this mountain that it was already unprecedented how much immigration we had. The amount of immigration we've had just over the last – since 9-11. Look at the irony in that. Um particularly from the Middle East, but but certainly everywhere else. It's enough to crush us fiscally, culturally, and electorally as conservatives. Um, you know, I'm not putting them in the same boat. One's for all of America. One, you know, we're talking about Trump and Republicans, you know, committing masochism. So um, what they don't understand, what they refuse to recognize is that based on those that immigration baseline, there's already a visa waiting list that's 4 million long. It's a little bit, it's more than that, but 4 million or so are chain migrants, are family-based ties. They're not employment-based categories. So you look at that list, and if we don't get that taken care of, we're done anyway. That in itself is enough. It will turn the country. I mean, I, I even question even... On, even if we stopped everything now, if it's already, if we've crossed the point of no return, but it is what it is. We got to fight for what we got to fight for. I mean, this is why people have been yelping about this for 30 years, that this wasn't going to work. Um, and, and you're seeing that electorally. It's astounding. Um, you know, you, you, you just, you just look everywhere and the Democrats are really, it, it's a very narrow map. Um, you know, obviously we were lucky enough to Hillary was a terrible candidate and Trump wound up cracking the Midwest. And by the way, there's there's a lot to say there because, you know, a lot of the states he won have kind of minimal immigration. They have large black populations, but the black turnout was down because they were just not really into Hillary. She's a terrible candidate. That's how that's really how Trump won. Um, but, you know, you get a more excitable Democrat candidate that you get back to somewhere near the Obama levels of the black turnout and you take those states off the table and then you have the immigration population growing in other states, you have a major problem. Um, Virginia, let, let, you know, and, and this is basically it's Florida, Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia getting there, um, Arizona, Nevada, Colorado. And um, and then the big one is eventually Texas. So even if you could somehow start, you know, okay, Ohio's moving to the right. It used to be very much a toss-up. We lost it with Obama. Now 
it looks like it's doing better, almost as good as Texas now, just because of demographics. Maybe you open up a permanent presence in Iowa and um, Michigan. Maybe maybe we could even try to play in Maine and Minnesota. But the map is really shrinking. And, you know, let's talk about Virginia for a moment. So obviously a big part of Virginia becoming like a northern state, becoming more like Maryland rather than the rest of the south, you know, obviously it was the growth of government. And then by extension, that just brought in a lot of white liberals, a lot of native liberals, a lot of, you know, that's definitely true. But the way it really reached a tipping point that it's not even competitive anymore, it's not even a purple state. Now it's really a blue state. Um, it's really out of reach. Trump won an election without it. The first time a Republican won without Virginia, and who knows when, maybe ever. So you look at Virginia in 1980, the foreign-born population was 3.3%. In 2010, it was 11.4%. Folks, that is between a three- and four-fold increase. And that's 2010. I got news for you. We're eight years later, and from from the American Community Survey data I've seen from 2015-2016, Virginia has been one of the um, one of the fastest-growing uh, you know, areas of new immigrants and new citizens. You look at um, Florida, 1980, it was 10.9%. 2010, 19.4%. Again, growing very rapidly. North Carolina was one3 Now it's, and not now, this is old, it's, it's more, is up to 7.5. Nevada was 6.7. Three decades later, 18.8. Arizona was 6, now it's 13.4. Colorado was 3.9, 9.8. And Georgia was 1.7, now 9.7. Watch Georgia there. Watch Georgia. Here's the deal. I look at every year the naturalization numbers. They give you the origin and then the state where, they're, where they've naturalized, where they've settled. States like Virginia and North Carolina, but certainly Texas, are getting a tremendous amount. And by the way, I forgot Texas. Texas was 6%. Now it's 16.4%. And Texas is getting the lion's share, sometimes even more than California, in all these constituencies. So I'm saying even without amnesty, you look at the 4 million waiting list. It's all – it's 20% is Mexico. And then a number from Bangladesh and Pakistan – and then even from some places where they're not Islamic, they're not a public charge, there are certain areas in Asia where they're very, you know, they're, they're very good, they're productive, and they're good people. I'm not talking bad. I'm just saying the reality is they still culturally, they do vote Democrat. I'm just saying you're not going to win. That's enough to bury us alone. So if you tell me they're actually going to accelerate because here's the trick. They're not getting rid of the diverse, they're getting rid of the diversity visa lottery, but then they're reallocating the visas towards an extra 55,000 every year from this list of chain migrants. So, you know, he promised to get rid of chain migration, promised to get rid of diversity visa lottery, but then they're getting rid of the diversity lottery to cannibalize and accelerate the chain migrants. After we're done those 4 million, then we're not going to have chain migration. We're done! See, this is the soft bigotry of low expectations. Trump ran on this. We we ran on this because we needed to shut this down. We're saying, well... At least we're not granting as much amnesty and we're having some reforms down the road after we accelerate it. Really? I mean, th- th- that's the expectation we have? It's not going to matter. Anyway, these are all the arguments. I'm out of air. I'm just kind of floating around here because I'm so tired. But the central point is getting back to Trump's promises at that Phoenix rally. Not just the policy promises, but the philosophy behind it. The atmosphere matters. You can only make an amnesty work for you, for America, if the broader concept of illegal immigration and chain migration and immigration not working for America is in the rearview mirror. Then you could do it from a position of strength. In the current atmosphere, it will never even get passed off the ground in a good way. And certainly thereafter, it's downhill executively, it's downhill judicially. It's downhill politically. It will never work for us. 
That is the truth you will not hear anywhere else from these shallow idiots um, that comprise phony conservative media. That's why you need to make CRTV, CR, your one-stop shop. We got you covered here. Next week, we're going to try to have Ted Cruz on to talk more about this, other guests, other people running for office, as well as my own commentary. Thank you for listening to this very long episode. God bless y'all. Have a great weekend. This has been another episode of Conservative Conscience.